The Waco History Podcast is sponsored by Brotherwell Brewery on Historic Bridge Street in Waco. Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco, I'm safe when I reach San All right, welcome back to the Waco History uh, Podcast. Uh, I'm excited to have the guest, a uh, published, uh, well-published uh, author with me today to talk about a book that he just redid. I will, I will put a rejoinder at the beginning of this uh, podcast for those families listening with kids. Uh, you know, proceed with caution. Uh, much like our episode we did on the reservation, uh, not, not much longer. Not, well, it's actually been a couple of years now since we did the re- uh, reservation, but... Uh, this is a connection that the author made for me that I think is a fascinating uh, uh, connection. So Jamie Lynn Blaschke, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Jamie is the author of Inside the Texas Chicken Ranch, the definitive account of the best little whorehouse, which uh, was originally published in... Uh, 2016, first edition. 2016, first edition, and then it was expanded uh, 20 pages and a dollar cheaper <laughs> <laughs> and was just republished, and I'm sure uh, some corrections made. Uh, not that it, you know, not that there were any errors in the first one, uh, but uh, republished this just last month, and so there's a new edition of it out, uh, and it is an impressive work. I've had it to take a look at it, over 300 pages uh, detailing the history of this little institution uh, outside of Lagrange, Texas. That is. Uh, famous and infamous, uh, I, I think, at the same time. So, Jamie, thanks for being with us today. Well, I'm delighted. Any any uh, opportunity to uh, shed light on this uh, misunderstood and often joked about part of Texas history, which, you know, really touches on every era of Texas history as the state evolved from a, a proto-nation independent of Mexico into, you know, the modern Texas that we have today. Mm-hmm. And you do that in the book. I think you give the tr- give it the treatment that it, it deserves, uh, which counters a lot of stereotypes and other images of that institution, that, particularly through the musical and, and other popularized treatments of it well well here's the thing that movie that uh burt reynolds and dolly pardon did it's not a documentary <laughs> so so it's not 100 percent sticking to the fact <laughs> so jamie has a, a background in uh, journalism he is a writer he's an editor he's a blogger he's a blogger he's a producer of a blog uh he's an interviewer so this is a little intimidating for me he's a well-experienced <laughs> interviewer and so he, he has a, he's got the chops uh, to take on this topic. But I'd love to, to start, Jamie, with you talking a little bit about personally, you know, uh, why you got into this topic. I, you know, Texas A&M University, you know, you, you can't get away from this topic in, in some ways. But talk a little bit about your introduction to it. Well, not so much anymore. The, uh, in College Station, they've kind of put the chicken ranch a little bit more at arm's length than it was when I was they there. They don't but, want to uh, talk about it anymore. Uh, no, not really. Uh, so <laughs> uh, 
I grew up in Columbus, Texas, which is okay. a very small town uh, right next to LaGrange. And mm -hmm. so I heard references to the Chicken Ranch all my life. Obviously, the Burt Reynolds Dolly Parton movie. I uh, went to A&M, still heard references to it there, uh, particularly since they filmed significant parts of the movie there on campus. Mm -hmm. So when Marvin Zindler passed away from pancreatic cancer in 2007, my wife and I, my wife is from Bastrop, so she had a very similar experience with uh, the chicken ranch to me. Mm -hmm. uh, we looked at each other and said we'd never heard the real story behind it. Mm. And so I started looking around and discovered a serious history of the chicken ranch had not been written. And honestly, that really upset me because this was living history that was dying right before us. Marvin Zindler was one of the major players. Mm -hmm. uh, he was gone. The sheriff had died like 20 years prior. Nobody had heard from the uh, last madam, Edna Milton, for about 20 years. People mm -hmm. assumed she had passed away. So nobody had taken the time to chronicle it other than the few magazine and newspaper articles that occurred at the time of its closing. Yeah. So... You know, it just it just made me angry. Somebody should have done this. Somebody should have done this. And every so often, something would set me off, and I'd get on my soapbox and rant. And finally, one day, my wife just got so sick and tired of hearing me say that, said, <laughs> quit complaining about it and write the darn book yourself. So I was on the spot. I said, okay, three things have to happen. One, uh, Edna, the last madam, has to still be alive. Two, I can find her because nobody had heard from her. Mm -hmm. And three, she has to agree to talk to me. Mm. Otherwise, I would just be regurgitating whatever everyone else had already written. That wouldn't add anything to the conversation. Well, I started looking for her, and after about a few weeks, I tracked her down living in Phoenix, Arizona, where wow. she'd lived since the you know mid-1980s. Uh, just Edna Milton, but nobody knew who she was. You know, She didn't go out of her way to tell people who she was. Uh, I contacted her, and she said she had always wanted to write her life story. She only had like a sixth grade education and invited my wife and I to come visit her. So in February of 2009, we flew out to Phoenix for two days, just sat there and interviewed her constantly, nonstop. And that's where the story began. Wow. I thought it would take about six months, start to finish to research and write. It ended up taking about six years wow. to research and write because there were so many rabbit holes. I did not know at the time what I did not know. Mm -hmm. Every little thread I pulled on unraveled this larger skein of, you know, just unknown material. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, well, I have to track this down and chase this down and, you know, discover all this. So so can you establish, like, the, the years? It closes in the 70s, right? It yeah. closed in 1973. Okay. And, and when does it open? The chicken ranch as we know it, yeah. as the chicken ranch opened in 1915, okay. it can trace its lineage back yeah. to around 1844. Yeah. That's when the first uh, sex workers ostensibly were documented in LaGrange. And that, okay. that's uh, pretty tentative, but at the same time, it's not a big leap of the imagination because you know prostitution was rampant in the West and the yeah. frontier. And there's a lot of circumstances around that that indicate that that's when it began. So Texas was still a republic mm -hmm. at the time. Uh, from that point on, on the road, it was uh, Lafayette Street. It went up to the river, 
Mm-hmm. It was La Bahia Road. That was the main thoroughfare connecting essentially Goliad to Nacogdoches in East Texas. Mm-hmm. So it was a major thoroughfare. There was a ferry set up there on the river, and the town basically accreted around that. Mm-hmm. And by the 1880s, that strip right next to the river was known as Kalamazoo. It okay. was saloons and brothels, and yeah. it was LaGrange's vice district. Okay. As everyone passing through had to cross the ferry there, and so that's where they would stop, and mm-hmm. they would either spend the night or spend a few hours, and it continued on. By 1890, a bridge had been built over the river, so the ferry went out of business. So the Kalamazoo district started declining, but another district in town, in the middle of town near the train station, had developed. Mm-hmm. and. That was called the shacks. It was a lot of cribs, run-down hotels, uh, not very savory. Mm-hmm. And in 1913, 19, in 1913, Austin closed its vice district. Yeah. They had Guy Town, which was a legalized vice, vice district, much like Waco's reservation. Mm-hmm. And a reformer, reformist uh, city council and mayor came to office, and they passed a law said no more vice will be tolerated in the city and Jesse Williams owned a brothel in Guytown and I've got uh, no I don't have it right with me uh, I have an article from the Austin American Statesman on October 13th or 3rd or 13th it says women of the district leaving city and it talked about all these women who had worked in the vice district in Austin were lining up at the train station either catching trains down to San Antonio or up to Dallas or Fort Worth or out to Houston, Jesse Williams somehow ended up in LaGrange. Uh, The popular version, and probably the most likely, was that she was recruited by owners of brothels Mm -hmm. in LaGrange to act as a front, to be the madam, the thinking being that if there was a woman who was front and center, it would be less offensive, seem less exploitative, and perhaps some of this reform movement that had been going around the country would pass LaGrange by. Well, Jessie owned her own brothel in Austin, so she wasn't going to be content being a figurehead. So by 1914, she had gained control of all the prostitution in LaGrange, consolidated. Then in 1915, she got a partner, Grace Copeland, and they bought... 11 acres for $700 from OK Zap outside of the city limits and relocated their operations outside the city so they would not be subject to the whims of the city council saying this is illegal or that's illegal or anything like that. No criminalization. Mm-hmm. They still had to deal with the county, but still out of sight, out of mind. The main population was there in LaGrange, and so they were just on the other side of the city limits. So Jesse Williams, or Aunt Jessie, as she comes to be known, uh, provides us the thread that connects us back to uh, Waco history. Yes, yes indeed. Can you you share that? Uh, Aunt Jessie was born Faye Zulema Stewart uh, in February of 1885 or 1886. Different dates are listed there. She was born in Waco. Uh, There are her her biography is is kind of muddled to yeah. say the least there's a lot of sources that say she uh, was born in and grew up in H- Hubbard 
And I've not been able to find any documentation substantiating that. But mm -hmm. she was, uh, there is census data and other information that she uh, was born in Waco, grew up in Waco. Uh, her parents were either from Georgia or Nashville. It's not clear. They spent a lot of time in both of those locations. And uh, even as the Faye was growing up, they visited Nashville on occasion. So they, you know, most likely had relatives there. Mm -hmm. She had one sister, an older sister named Alpha May. And what was interesting, one of the big changes, probably the most significant changes, uh, updates in my new edition of the book is her biography. Mm. Because previously, uh, the belief was, and this was documented to some degree, that her father died in the 1880s yeah. and the family fell on hard times. Turns out that that death of her father was based on a faulty census record. He did not die. In fact, um, he survived quite a few years more. He lived until uh, 1924, I oh think. He goodness. died in Oklahoma City. Uh, what did happen, though, was that her mother passed away in 1896. I see. So Faye and her mother, uh, Faye and her sister, Alpha, lived with their father up until 1903. Mm -hmm. 1903 her father remarries and immediately Faye and her sister move out. Mm. And so I don't know if there yeah. is tension there or what uh, his family father, their father goes on to have another family with his new wife. Mm -hmm. um, he is interesting because uh, he was Andrew James Stewart <clears throat> and he is, had a uh, grocery store, 1881, 1882 at uh, sixth street in Austin here. Okay. It's just like, Two yeah, blocks within the shadow of where we are now. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, he had relocated from another location, so this was a new expanded uh, grocery store that he had, but you know, something didn't go right, go well. So by the end of 1882, uh, his grocery store was basically liquidated to pay creditors. Oh, wow. And after that, he worked as uh, for a printing press. He worked as a clerk. He had a number of different uh, you know, jobs mm -hmm. around town and obviously ended up in uh, Oklahoma City at the time of his death. So in 1903, Alpha and Faye Stewart moved to Austin. And here's where the trail picks up mm -hmm. because, hang on just a moment, let me find it for you. Here we go. The Austin American Statesman and the, let me check on the date here. It was the uh, Tuesday, July 14th edition, 1903, on page five. Uh, police court, several cases were disposed of by his honor yesterday. Jesse Williams was fined $5 vagrancy. Jesse Williams was the pseudonym adopted by Faye Stewart. Mm -hmm. Pseudonyms were often ad adopted by people working in sex trade and vice industry to yeah. protect their family's reputation. Vagrancy was the most popular euphemism for prostitution. Mm. So move out, leave home, immediately get arrested for prostitution. Mm -hmm. And that kind of sets the tone for the rest of her life. Uh, yeah. her, her sister, Alpha doesn't show up. Um, it's assumed that they live together or at least in proximity to each other. There's no connection except uh, in the March 23rd edition, 1908, uh, Jesse Williams takes out an ad in the uh, Austin American 
a card of thanks. I take this method of expressing my thanks for and appreciation of the many beautiful floral offerings placed upon the grave of my sister mm. and to Reverend Dr. Briggs and to the dear Christian ladies of Austin, Texas for kind words of sympathy in my sad bereavement, Jesse Williams. Oh. So her sister died. That was the last of her family. Wow. And her sister was 25 at the time. So Jesse was a couple years younger than her. Mm-hmm. So here she is, uh, early 20s, on her own mm. in Austin, in Guytown. Mm-hmm. Do we know uh, in Guytown when she becomes a madam or when she kind of, uh, you said she owned her own brothel at some point? By, yeah. by 1912, she had partnered with another woman named Francie Walker. Uh, and it's interesting because in the census of 1910, Jesse is listed as a housekeeper mm-hmm. in this brothel, which that's kind of a distinction. I mean, it seems not that big of a leap, but uh, the women who were working as sex wor- workers were listed as boarders. Mm-hmm. That was just, okay, this is a boarder. This person's staying here and paying rent. The fact that she was a housekeeper indicates to me that she was at least had some kind of supervisory uh, responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So by... 1912, she and Walker had a uh, small uh, brothel, a house that they owned at 200 West 2nd Street Mm. in Austin. Mm. That's right in the middle of the Guytown district. Mm -hmm. So they had uh, several women working under them with the city directory. Uh, And then, as I said earlier, in 1913, city council, you know, changed the uh, legal acceptance and no longer was it uh, tolerable to operate a house of ill repute in Austin. You mm-hmm. know, there was a lot of concern that they were corrupting you know, the students from the nearby university and how this is beneath the dignity of you know, the state capitol with all our legislators and everyone there. And mm-hmm. so shut it down. You know, you point out well in the book, despite the efforts of uh, reformers, it's really the the push to get military bases, as in the case of Waco, that that forces a lot of these municipalities to to shut down these vice districts. I think Hell's Half Acre faces the same thing in Fort Worth. Um, I mean that that changeover that happens. How does that impact you think what's going on down outside Lagrange, where there's not a military base? That's yeah. exactly right. People say, "Well, how did how did Lagrange survive?" Lagrange did not have a military base. In the run up to World War One, the military's biggest concern was, "Oh, venereal disease is going to sap our nation's fighting strength," uh, and you know that's not entirely unfounded because mm. you got to realize syphilis was a major scourge at this time. Uh, it's you know it drove people madness. It, it was disfiguring. The main this this is how bad syphilis was. The main treatment for syphilis, it, up until the 1950s when penicillin and other other antibiotics became widely accepted in use in treatment of this, was to infect someone who had syphilis with malaria. Oh my gosh! Because the malaria infection would generate a fever that was so high it would kill the syphilis bacterium. So that was the only foolproof cure for syphilis for at least 50 years. That is, if you survive the malaria. Yeah, yeah, that's a big (laughs) if. But malaria wasn't disfiguring, and it had a slightly higher survival rate than syphilis. 
and it didn't drive you mad. It just made you feel really, really, really bad yeah. for an extended amount of time. Yeah. Well, it, and as far as these vice districts, of course, it does not end prostitution in these municipalities, but it eliminates the vice districts. And so how does that closure or other places impact kind of the growth of how the chicken ranch becomes what we know of as the chicken ranch? Oh, the chicken ranch was not unique. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, all the major metropolitan areas in the United States, and Texas in particular, closed down their vice districts. Mm -hmm. The smaller towns that did not have, you know, a financial stake in hosting an army or navy base or anything of that nature, they had no uh, real need to shut down their brothels. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was people wanted them. There was obviously a demand for them, and realize up until you know 1917 they were legal everywhere. Mm-hmm. So suddenly it's illegal. A lot of these uh, vice uh, districts uh, brothels in country towns they'd been there for years, and it's like, well, why is it wrong now? And it was okay before. So they kind of continued via inertia mm-hmm. with the chicken ranch in particular. Um, you know, the two, uh, two successive sheriffs, August and Will Lacine, they were from Germany. Uh, a lot of European countries had legalized vice mm-hmm. and prostitution. So it wasn't really thought of as outside the norm. You know, LaGrange in particular, Fayette County, was settled predominantly by German and Czech immigrants. Mm-hmm. You know, Germany and the Czech Republic well, it wasn't a republic then. It was part of the Austrian Empire, but, you know, prostitution was legal there. Mm-hmm. So all these immigrants, they saw it. It's no big deal. And all the other country towns had brothels as well. As I say in the book, you couldn't throw a stick without mm-hmm. hitting one. The difference is that by 1970s, Chicken Ranch was the last one standing. Yeah. Various uh, things had conspired to close all the other brothels, particularly in 1958-59, Attorney General Will Wilson launched an anti-vice campaign, mm-hmm. and he is most notably uh, responsible for the closure of the free state of Galveston, mm-hmm. the big gambling empire by the Maceo brothers and other uh, organized crime operations both on Galveston Island and in Galveston County on the mainland. There was a lot of casinos, a lot of gambling, a lot of vice, a lot of uh, brothels on Post Office Street in Galveston. Of course, being a major seaport, this kind of goes hand-in-hand with sailors coming in, also tourism. I mean, Galveston was Las Vegas before Las Vegas was Las Vegas. They brought in performers, Burns and Allen, Phil Harris, a lot of big-name touring performers would go to Galveston to perform at the casinos, just like you get it today with Las Vegas residencies. Mm -hmm. And, yes, gambling was illegal in Texas, and, yes, prostitution was illegal in Texas, and all this other stuff was illegal in Texas. They just didn't care. (laughs) (laughs) They operated (laughs) completely out in the open and said, yeah, try and shut us down if you want. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, because there was no local, there was no local sentiment that was coming up against no. these early on. Again, it's yeah. it's the attitude was, and this is kind of the whole frontier Texas. I mean, it was isolated, rural. Mm-hmm. You had pockets of uh, populations here and there, but it's like we handle our own business. Yeah. We don't need outsiders coming here to tell us how to run things. Mm-hmm. And you know, Texas has a historically weak governor mm-hmm. that didn't have a lot of authority, uh, so. 
it was almost like a confederation of various counties together with no real oversight mm -hmm. in Texas. And so it was that pioneer frontier mentality. We're all on our own. The real power rests with our local sheriff. And sometimes we'll cooperate with the state and sometimes we won't. It just, how, just depends how we feel that day. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'd like to know more about the Aunt Jessie years as sure. you kind of talk about uh, her management. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just because that lays, uh, from what I can tell, it lays the foundation, really. Yeah. Well, from my personal analysis, this is my, you know, armchair uh, psycho psychologist going here. I, she had already lost one brothel, mm -hmm. and she wasn't about to lose that investment again. So one of the primary hallmarks of her tenure at the chicken ranch was she became a major philanthropist uh, for Fayette County. Mm -hmm. They launched a campaign to open, build and open a public swimming pool. Well, I believe the total cost was estimated at $7,500. You know, this is you know, 1950s money, she gave $5,000. This is a public swimming pool in LaGrange? Public swimming pool in LaGrange. Okay. They had a hospital that was a converted mansion. It had like 25 beds. They were going to add on to this existing hospital another 50 beds plus a neonatal unit. Mm -hmm. And she donated $10,000 wow. for that. <laughs> so very quickly... When the biggest uh, philanthropist in town is cutting checks bigger than everyone else combined, suddenly any kind of objections people may have to the line of business she ends, that becomes less important. <laughs> Very much so. Uh, yeah. when, when they were placing their orders for you know, food because they fed all the women there. They were board, it was a boarding house. Mm -hmm. you know, they would spread the orders around to make sure that every merchant in town got a portion of it, so everyone benefited that way. The dry goods stores, department stores, when they're buying clothing, that sort of thing, everything's coming. You know, all their orders for whatever materials and supplies that you would need to keep a farmhouse going on the outskirts of town, they purchased locally. Mm -hmm. They bought locally. There was a financial stake for everyone in town that they continue going. Now, it, it wasn't wholly dependent, but at the same time, if this is a 5 or 10% of your business, that's not insignificant. You're mm -hmm. not going to go bankrupt if they stop buying from you, but you're going to notice it if they stop. Um, plus, and this is something I think is uh, overlooked, uh, the, the spinoff revenue. Mm -hmm. Because when someone is passing through LaGrange, whether it's on Highway 71, if they're a traveling salesman or a politician or whatever, and they stop at the chicken ranch and do their business, so to speak, well, afterwards, they're going to need to fill up with gas, yeah, uh, buy some snacks, maybe stop at the Cottonwood Inn and get a chicken fried steak. Mm -hmm. You know, that generates a continuous stream of revenue that's not, you know, it's not directly from the chicken ranch, but it's certainly tangentially generated by the chicken ranch. I, I think all of that added up, and the people in town really recognized that. Mm -hmm. Were you able to find, is it on the county tax rolls as far as uh, taxation of the chicken ranch and revenues that the county might have been receiving from I it? did not get into that. I did okay. get to the t county tax assessment office, uh -huh. and in the 1980s, 
there was an ownership group that purchased it with the intent of building a museum there. Uh-huh. And to generate the revenue to fund this museum, they started selling one-inch squares of the back corner of the property as uh-huh. novelty deeds. And the tax assessor's office, county land office, has a separate book with those. I think they sold 300, 500, something like that. But they have those, <laughs> they have those novelty deeds all recorded there. Uh-huh. Well, you know, as you talked about this traffic, and, and I gave you a hard time earlier being a Texas A&M mm-hmm. uh, graduate. But, well, fully but you, deserved. But you put the, stocking, the shocking stat in there that, that uh, I think I might have guessed at, but in your research discovering a lot of this traffic is, is not coming from the county. It's people coming in from outside the county, and a lot of it is – is the young uh, gentleman from uh, Texas A&M University. You point that out as far as the traffic that's coming yeah. in. Well, you know, at the time, Texas, well, through most of the 20th century, uh, up until you, know, you get into the 1970s, Texas A&M was rural, all-male, mm-hmm. and all-military. I yeah. mean, it was like the citadel of Texas, only mm-hmm. probably less sophisticated at the time. Almost all of the attendees the students at A&M were farm boys, you know, barely educated. You know, this was the agriculture and mechanical college. They were there to learn agriculture, and they were to, there to learn engineering, and they were all going to go into the military when they graduated. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the pipeline. And so College Station didn't exist as a town, mm-hmm. certainly not the big city it's growing up into. And Bryan was, you know, pretty small town as well. So if you would have taken... All the women in Bryan, the daughters and the mothers and everyone else, and put them together, they still probably wouldn't have been enough of them to date all of the students and realize Texas A&M was really small at the time. So Mm -hmm. you had uh, road trips among those who could afford it. Now, the chicken ranch wasn't super expensive by any means. It was a country brothel. But, you know, Probably 90% of the attendees at A&M, the students, were first-generation college students. You know, a lot of them didn't have two pennies to rub together, so they came up with elaborate schemes to try and win uh, raffles to get a trip to the chicken ranch or to, you know, get a quart of bourbon or any of these little contraband items that were kind of the siren song for students of college-going age. Mm -hmm. Shenanigans ensued. (laughs) Um, yeah, and so all that, I, I would think, I mean, LaGrange's view would also be it's not corrupting our town as much because yeah. it's mainly out-of-town out of traffic that's yeah. coming in out of the chicken Defin- ranch. Definitely a lot of uh, out-of-town traffic coming out of the chicken ranch, and a wasn't alone. I mean, mm-hmm. University of Texas doesn't get off the hook. They had their sororities, and I mean, not sororities, goodness gracious. Fraternities. I mean, fraternities, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Uh, the fraternities were, you know, making road trips out there. But that circles back to another rumor that was popular, that uh, sorority girls uh, from University of Texas would work there during the summer to earn money for college. That had absolutely no basis in truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of the women there quickly realized that if they would tell a story like that, suddenly these traveling salesmen or these politicians or other things, well, they're actually doing a good deed by patronizing because this poor girl is trying to better herself. And who am I to deny her the chance at getting a good education? So mm-hmm. I have to stop there and visit her it's and give her my business. It's because, you know, yeah. I, I would be condemning her to a life of, you know, this immorality. But by, you know, 
giving her my business, she's saving up her money and she's going to get a degree and she's going to go on and live a healthy, productive life. You know, the women who worked there were smart. I uh-huh. mean, they're really yeah. good at public relations and they quickly found uh, what stories they could tell would generate the most returning clients and the biggest tips afterwards. How did you, how do you find information? You, you know, you talked about, you know, a lot of these women are off operating under pseudonyms to protect their family and I mean, how did you find information on them and their lives? I mean, how did you excavate that? Well, that was the most difficult aspect. First of all, I, you know, I did contact Edna and mm-hmm. got to interview her a lot. So she talked a lot of her experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also documented evidence on a couple of the other women who was working there, notably Deaf Eddie. Uh, she, Estella Barrows, she came there in the 1930s. She was on the census record, uh, was hard of hearing. That's how she got her nickname. And she was still there when Edna started getting, uh, started working there. So Edna was able to tell me, you know, part of her story. By that time in the 1950s, Eddie, Deaf Eddie had uh, aged out, mm-hmm. so to speak, of working the floor. So she was more of a manager mm-hmm. and eventually uh, retired to Kima, I believe. And oh, wow. uh, when she was in her 60s, took up water skiing. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> So you don't get many stories like that. And so that was interesting. Uh, uh-huh. She she um, had a picture on her dresser of a football player. And uh, one day, uh, one of the clients came in there and saw that. And it's like, oh, is that your boyfriend? Said, no, it was actually her nephew who uh, was playing football for Rice University mm-hmm. at the time. And uh, Edna told me that he eventually graduated with petroleum engineering degree and became a big Honcho at uh, Exxon. Oh wow, so that's amazing. Just yeah, all sorts of different things tied together. The most interesting, most valuable for me in being able to tell the workers' mm-hmm. side of the story came. Oh gosh, it was probably about 2014. I had the first draft finished, <clears throat> and was shopping it around for agents and publishers, and I got an email just out of the blue because somehow I had become known online as that chicken ranch guy. Mm-hmm. And it was this uh, fellow from Houston, and he says, I don't know if you're interested in this or not, but, um, you know, my mom used to work at the chicken ranch. Uh, Would you like to talk to her? (laughs) It was like, oh, Oh, really? Really? Because that's not an email you get every day. And, you know, got in contact. Uh, She worked at the ranch's penny because the day that she went up there to apply for the job, it was very hot and very humid and she was sweating just standing waiting at the door and Edna looked at her and said oh you're just as shiny as a new penny and that was the name that she worked under Uh, she had been um, not really a happy story up until that Mm -hmm. point because she was from Houston and had basically been forced into prostitution earlier in her life Uh, she had been an unwed mother and given birth to a son actually the son who eventually contacted me a local gangster slash pimp basically kidnapped him and forced her to work for him as a prostitute oh my gosh and this story that didn't get into the book but uh, basically uh, she escaped him with the help of two uh, dps officers and fled to dallas for six months until she heard that he'd been arrested and sent to huntsville uh so was not a great situation. It was a really, really rough and kind of horrific for her. Mm-hmm. After that, um, her mother had moved in with her. Uh, her mother's boyfriend moved into 
in with her and neither of them were working because they had some type of disability and she had had another child in the interim and suddenly she had multiple mouths to feed and she could not meet those obligations waiting tables as mm. she was doing so she started thinking it's like well you know i've done it before mm. at least this would be on my own terms uh you know let's see if i can manage it and so she went and applied at the the chicken ranch, I guess it wasn't applied, makes it sound more formal. Yeah, that, <laughs> that, that, that raises a bunch of questions on, on how that would happen. Yeah. But, but yeah. She, she stayed there for several years, and, and a lot of the stories that she told me, uh, working conditions, the food that they were fed, really meshed almost perfectly with what Edna had told me. Mm. Uh, and so I was like, wow, that's you know really fascinating. It was interesting because Penny told me this is something Edna had not. Edna would not tolerate um, pimps or other mm. people hanging around. And most of the women there were either married or were connected with a man of some sort, although they weren't allowed to come and actually visit. Penny said she was the only one of the women working there who wasn't connected to a man. She was she was an outlaw, quote-unquote, mm. that she... Uh, that she had to get on, she had a friend who basically she bribed to say that he was her pimp. Oh, wow. And after she had been there for several months, she told the truth to Edna and was allow allowed to stay mm -hmm. and continue working. Edna didn't like pimps, couldn't stand pimps, but she found them useful for maintaining discipline. Mm. So if she, because Again, a lot of these women had been on the street yeah. and had been in very rough conditions and were good at manipulating or trying to find an advantage one way or the other. So if someone started uh, questioning Edna's authority, let's say, Edna said, do I need to call your pimp? Do I need to tell him you're acting up? So that would shut him up right away because again a lot of these pimps were violent unpleasant people mm -hmm. and if their woman was not providing the expected revenue stream you know they would beat them mm -hmm. they would they would do all sorts of really terrible things mm -hmm. uh, penny says that there was uh, one of the women working there saw that penny was independent and didn't have anyone connected to her so she decided she was going to break up with her pimp and she came back in very bad condition oh, well. because, you know, they don't care. Yeah. They're, they're just going to, uh, you know, no, you're, you are essentially my slave and you are going to continue generating money from me. Yeah. So it's important to have that story, right? Because, I mean, that's, I'm sure that's reflective of what a lot of these women face that got them into this sort of work, sex yeah. work. Yeah, yeah, abs yeah, abso yeah. Absolutely. Because, yeah. uh, you know, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, yeah, you know, paints this whole rosy song and dance uh, yeah. routine. Um, you know, prostitution in Texas throughout most of the 20th century and probably even today, yeah, uh, was not a good and happy thing for the most part. Uh, but I will say that Chicken Ranch, when it was in existence, was the least worst place mm -hmm. any woman could work. I yeah. mean, Edna didn't tolerate people abusing her women. They got to eat good quality food and ironically uh, they probably ate healthier diets than most of their customers because Edna didn't like fried foods so she wouldn't let the cooks 
you know, serve greasy fried food. Mm -hmm. And so they would have grilled and baked and broiled, and they would have uh, steak on the weekends. They'd have chicken, you know, lean pork. They'd have vegetables. She would always have uh, uh, bowls of fresh fruit on the table just if they needed a snack, a little burst of sugar uh, energy Mm -hmm. during the day. And so, I mean, that's what a healthy diet (laughs) is. And it was just because of Edna's personal preference, that's what the women had access to. And so it wasn't a whole lot of, you know, candy or, or, or alcohol or anything like that. You know, they ate pretty straightforward, good, lean meals. Hmm. Well, we're getting in this conversation, just the value of that find of finding Edna and her being willing to talk, as you said, conditional on doing the project. But you said she came to the chicken ranch in the fifties. Yeah. 1952, I believe is when she came to the chicken ranch. She had, uh, her, her life was pretty rough when she was born in Oklahoma, uh, kind of dropped out of school. And when she was 16, she was working at a pharmacy uh, lunch counter in Pampa, Texas. And her brother came home from serving in the military, met her there, and they went back to the family in Oklahoma. While she was there, an older sister who was married and living in California kind of started talking all about this. Oh, how great California was because this is World War II, mm-hmm. the middle of World War II. There's jobs for everyone. You know, it's like, you know, streets are paved with gold, that sort of thing. So Edna decided she was going to go with her sister back to California, Los Angeles, San Diego, some, someplace like that, Southern California. When she got there, uh, she realized she had been set up that her sister and her sister's husband planned to marry her off to one of her sister, uh, her brother, uh, brother-in-law's co-workers, Elva Arthur Hudson, who was in the military and working in one of the shipyards there. And Edna was 16, said, I'm too young to marry you. Mm-hmm. Well, her sister wrote a letter to the parents, said, oh, Edna's in love with this guy and wants your permission to marry him. And so they said, okay, if she wants to marry him, fine. So she was forced into marriage. Um, he was staying on the base. He would come back and go through her purse and take all of her money out. Um, came back with a bad case of gonorrhea one uh, night. Uh, it was a disastrous marriage. He ended up spending uh, several months in the uh, brig because he had assaulted a senior officer. Oh, wow. <laughs> he was a real piece of work, at least, again, according to Edna. And they mm-hmm. got divorced. Then she uh, fell in love with a B-29 pilot, um, and that, uh, you know, she was, she was still talking about him, you know, 60 years later. Wow. Uh, her eyes lit up. You know, mm. So I don't know if he was as into her mm. as she was into him, but they had a relationship. Uh, for some weeks or months as he was training, and then he shipped out, and she never never heard from him again. Uh, Didn't know if he survived. Um, you know, B-29s did not have a great track record. Uh, they were, you know, early in their production, they were kind of death traps mm-hmm. for a while. Uh, so sometime after that, she found herself pregnant. Um, gave birth to a son after, gosh, like 22 hours of labor or something oh, like that, Freddie Joe. Uh, so she was a single mother with her son, and then her son died from jaundice, mm. which is easily treatable now. But again, back in the day, uh, she either didn't get the advice or didn't get the medical care. So, yeah, that was rough on her as well. 
so it's you know just setback after setback after setback as she said you know if you're young attractive have no education it doesn't take you very long to figure out you can make more money on your back than mm -hmm. you can on your feet waiting tables mm -hmm. and that's how she ended up in prostitution uh, she was in Fort Worth for a while in Hell's Half Acre after it was no longer formally Hell's Half Acre, yeah. but those uh, uh, um, hotels had turned into flop houses, and so yeah. they were essentially cribs, and so independent contractors there. She had one friend that was working there said, "Oh man, we shouldn't we shouldn't be working in these you know flop house brothels. We should be on the street. We can keep everything that way." And she goes, "I don't know. That's kind of dangerous." And her friend left and went onto the street and was like stabbed to death like a week later. So she packed up and left, <laughs> left uh, Fort Worth. And did she worked in Galveston, worked in Houston, worked in Beaumont. Uh, eventually she ended up in Austin and went to the brothel operated by Hattie Valdez, who was a legendary madam mm -hmm. in Austin, actually had the last operating brothel there uh, before it burned down. And Hattie said, no, I don't have any room, but have you ever heard of the chicken ranch? Uh, it's my understanding that they're a little short right now. Maybe they'll take you on. I'll put in a good word for you. So she was referred to the chicken ranch by Hattie Valdez. I see. So it's kind of connecting the different uh, prostitution royalty, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, and so that she... Um, just so I'll end the aunt, when is Aunt Jessie, how long is she in charge of the <coughs> ranch? Aunt Jessie is in charge until 1963. Oh, wow. Yes. She, uh, her health is declining. She has diabetes. In the 1950s, sometimes she's at a hotel in Kyle uh -huh. and falls down and breaks her hip. And the break was severe enough where they had to take her to Scott and White and Temple. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the 1950s. That's, you know, 100 miles away. So, but she was never able to really walk again. She was kind of bedridden in a wheelchair. And Edna said that she was starting to lose her mind a little bit. She was getting dementia or Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. uh, was not able to control the women. Her strict disciplinarian regime crumbled. Mm -hmm. And Sheriff Jim Flournoy actually shut down the chicken ranch because it was becoming rowdy, because there were complaints about the conduct. Mm -hmm. going on there it says you can't run it anymore closing it and so edna seeing an opportunity purchased it from jesse for thirty thousand dollars after a few weeks jesse came back and said i will i'll give you the money back i, I want it back and Ed, edna said no you cannot i will not sell it to you you're not capable of running it you can have your old bedroom and stay here as long as you want but I will not ever sell it back to you. Jesse ended up moving to San Antonio, and she died like six months later. Oh, okay. You know, she was not in good health. Um, she was not really wealthy either. She had mm -hmm. a reputation of being exceptionally wealthy. I believe at the time of her death, she had two rental properties in San Antonio. Had mm -hmm. died with a friend. Uh, forget, I'm drawing a blank on the name. A relative or a friend came in and handled the funeral arrangements and she's uh she's buried in san antonio okay today and okay. you know edna for her part uh, continued operating the chicken ranch uh quietly with herself and one other person there 
and by this time it expanded to about 10 bedrooms. Mm -hmm. And so there were some businessmen in town said, you know, well, Edna, you realize that uh, if you get arrested for running a house of ill repute, you'll serve just as much time for having two women working there as you would having 10 women working there because it's all the same. It doesn't matter scale. She goes, okay. And so she expanded and slowly opened back up and uh, Sheriff Lornoy never told her, no, you can't do that. So mm -hmm. that was kind of, I, th I, I suspect from the context, he kept an eye on them, made sure that if they were opening up and getting back into the business, that they were following the rules had been laid down before, you know, no gambling, no, no drugs, no other vices. You're there for one thing and one thing only. Mm -hmm. And that's the only service you're offering. Well, I would imagine, as you say, so we're getting into the, the 60s now, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, so this is, um, we're getting into an age where, as you said, the, the purge of the 50s had shut down a lot of these uh, sex worker operations. Uh, I would imagine that might cause the chicken ranch operation only to grow as far as demand and activity at the chicken ranch. Yeah, it certainly yeah. became the default. I mean, yeah. Austin did not have any, Hattie Valdez, her... Uh, last brothel burned down and she retired after that said mm -hmm. no I'm, I'm done and so the chicken ranch became basically last brothel standing mm -hmm. so you started getting politicians going there state senators uh, governors you know um, <clears throat> John Connolly mm -hmm. and his uh, brother state senator Wayne Connolly were regulars there Edna liked to tell a story that uh, obviously in this era of Texas, it was a cash-only operation. Mm -hmm. you know, didn't accept checks. Well, one day Wayne Connolly came in with some lobbyists and called Edna aside. and was like, Edna, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a little short. It would be okay if I wrote you a check to cover all this. And she goes, oh, for you? Yeah, absolutely. I know you. You're good. You're good for it. So after he wrote her the check, she went to the woman who was... Uh, handling the money that evening, and she goes, pay the girls out of the house money. I'll cover this one. And she took that check and framed it and hung it over her desk. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, if she, I wonder if she still had it. Yeah, I, yeah. She did not show it to me. Yeah. And after she died, I you know, put in a word with her nephew. It's like, if that check shows up, yeah. I want to see it. But yeah. yeah. But no. Wow. So what did she say about maybe changes she brought in to the operation? Uh, it, it sounds like she had a very vivid memory. Uh, I mean, you talked about the detail she got into. She didn't, yeah. she didn't like Jesse's authoritarian, although she was certainly author authoritarian. And I don't want to give the impression that, okay, Edna and Jesse are, are prostitutes with a heart of gold. Sure. I mean, that's, that's the cliche. Yeah. They were concerned to various degrees about the well-being of the women who worked there, but they were first and foremost businesswomen. Mm -hmm. You know, they were there to make money. Yeah. They weren't running a charity. So the biggest thing that Edna changed was Jesse had the attitude, okay, this is a boarding house. If someone is staying at a boarding house, they pay rent for the full month each month that they stay there, and they work the full month that they're staying there. Edna said, well, you know, when a woman's on her menstrual cycle, mm. she doesn't want to work, and customers don't want to work with her. So we'll just have three weeks on, and all the women get a week off. 
and they'll just pay for the three weeks that they're there and they're not home. And when they're not here, they're off doing whatever they don't have to pay. That was significantly liberalizing mm -hmm. the operating uh, working conditions of the women there. And that was popular. Mm -hmm. uh, Edna had a list of rules that she, she codified them. She had them printed up in a booklet. I can imagine the uh, mimeographed sheets stapled together that she would give every woman who would come there to work and say, memorize this. And it's, in fact, the Dolly Parton's introduction song, uh, Little Bitty Pissant Country Place at the beginning of the movie, mm -hmm. a lot of the lyrics in that are taken directly from Edna's list of rules that she gives to the women who came to work there. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, if, if you disagree with me, I'm open-minded. Say your piece, then mm -hmm. go pack and leave. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's verbatim from Edna. Mm -hmm. He goes, yeah, I'll be happy to discuss everything as long as I'm right. It's my house, my rules. So at its height, is it at its height kind of in the, as far as in the 60s yeah, there? Probably and, so, yeah. And at its height, it's a 10-bed? You said a 10-bed? I, be I believe it's 10-bed. You know, that was a moving target over time because mm -hmm. Jesse's bedroom was the main bedroom, and it was one of the earliest rooms of the building. When Edna took over, that was converted into the office. Okay. And so... The number of bedrooms would shift around, mm -hmm. uh, and they were added on, jerry-rigged over the years as uh, demand grew. So I believe it was about 10 bedrooms at its peak. And, of course, um, just for those that don't understand, can you explain to us how it gets the name The Chicken Ranch? <clears throat> okay. The popular story. Yeah. The popular uh, version that is repeated most often was that during the Great Depression, the majority of the customers coming in who were rural farmers could not afford to pay even Depression-era prices. So they hit upon an alternative. They would offer barter, and they would bring in livestock, predominantly chickens. And so they would give chickens to the women in exchange for their services, and pretty soon there were so many chickens running around there that people started calling it the chicken farm. Going to the chicken farm or going to the chicken ranch. Names were interchangeable for a while, but towards the end, it was more often known as the Chicken Ranch. Early on, old-timers still called it the Chicken Farm. Edna said that was a bunch of hockey poo. <laughs> that there was never any chickens except for one year that a grand jury was seated with an aggressive foreman who was going to look into vice in the Fayette County area. And some folks in town said, well, Jesse, you know, people are starting poultry farms out here, little chicken farms. So if you get yourself some uh, chickens and put it out there and go down on the tax rolls as a chicken farm, maybe they'll just kind of overlook it and you'll be able to skirt by. So she went down to the hatchery, got 100 chicks, turned them loose on the property, and the grand jury expired. Foreman went on his merry way, and you know people started calling it the chicken farm. But saying that people traded poultry yeah. for sexual services makes for a much better story. Well, I think the musical popularizes that uh, That theory. was, yeah. yeah it, and it was repeated in Texas Monthly. It was repeated. When the chicken ranch closed, that, that story was repeated by everyone mm -hmm. everywhere. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, Edna said she was so sick and tired of having people ask her about chickens. <laughs> there weren't no chickens. <laughs> What was the, under Edna, what was the arrangement between management and kind of the working girls as far as pay went, as far as, 
Did she talk about the? If she talked yeah. about it, it was it was a flat fee. I think it was like sixty forty split. I okay. might be off. I hadn't have to. It's it's in, it's in the book somewhere. Yeah. Well, you've <laughs> done your, your recall. Uh, you can, I can tell you just revisited the book because your recall is pretty amazing. It, it yeah. was so. It's a, yeah. Edna said. Uh, oh, that's one thing. Jesse would char. Uh, Je- she said that Jesse had like set time limits for prices, and mm. if you got extension. That was an additional amount, and Edna said that was too complicated. Just 60-40, whatever the girls take in, just split it right that so it doesn't matter how long they were in there. You're not counting minutes mm-hmm. or anything like that. It's just, you know, basic flat cut. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Um, was there a security presence at <clears throat> the brothel? I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking of all women there. I mean, If it was necessary, they yeah. had a... There, there is a rumor that the sheriff had a hotline put okay. in. That's not possible. Uh, yeah. You know, in the 1950s, late 40s, 1950s, most places didn't have phones at all. They were mm-hmm. getting telephones. So having a direct line from one building to another, that's not technologically feasible. What I think is probably most likely, and Edna actually agreed with me that it was probably the case, was that there was a party line put in. Mm-hmm. But the chicken ranch was the only number attached to the party line. So you wouldn't have anyone listening in. So they could yeah. call the sheriff's office, and the sheriff's office could call them, and it could be in private without uh, additional ears prying. For those of you under 50 years of age, <laughs> a party line was when multiple homes shared a single telephone line, and you would tell if the phone call was for you because it would ring one time, but if it would ring two times, it would be for the neighbors yeah. right down the street. Yeah, you had your ring, you had two shorts and one long or whatever your ring was. Yeah, however many people yeah. were on the party line, you <laughs> had to, had a special code, and you wouldn't pick it up unless it was your specific code. Or you were, you know, you were an eavesdropper. Yeah, <laughs> that was frowned upon. <laughs> um, you, you addressed this earlier, I think, but um, associated vices that might yes. come, I mean, it— you gave an indication that, that they kind of narrowed their vice to sex work. Yes. I mean, as far as gambling or maybe maybe during Prohibition, do we know if there's alcohol or those sorts of things? Well, it's my understanding yeah. that Jesse did sell beer, um, did not tolerate drunkenness. Mm-hmm. She would sell beer. Uh, Leary Giese, who was a longtime LaGrange resident, said she, that you, you could only buy one beer. Hmm. You could buy a beer. And this was all at a significant markup as well. Mm-hmm. When Edna was there, there was no alcohol sales. Okay. Um, they had a jukebox. Um, at the time, most jukeboxes, you know, you could pick out your songs for a nickel. You know, the Chicken Ranch, it was like a quarter. You know, they had a Coke machine. Well, you could buy a Coke everywhere else. Coke was a quarter, nickel, well, 50 cents at the Chicken Ranch. Uh, cigarette machine, same thing. So they had significant markup on all of the, uh, you know, sundries there. So everyone could, you know, buy whatever they wanted. And, of course, girls would say, well, I'm kind of thirsty. Will you buy me a Coke or, you know, mm-hmm. get me some cigarettes, you know, just to generate that revenue. And that was all, you know, gravy for the house. You know, they, they would make significant amounts of uh, revenue from that. Oh. Uh, what did what did Edna have to say about the end of the operation? Because she's, she's the madam to the close, right? Yeah. At the close. She was... Um, she said she was tired hmm. at that time. She had had some health incidents. Uh, you know, she 
kind of fainted, had uh, lightheadedness, uh, gone to the doctor with, you know, heart rhythmia, just because of the stress Mm -hmm. that she was dealing with. And this is before Marvin Zindler, you know, shows up because she's, you know, running this business. Uh, She had a nasty divorce from one of her husbands and is, you know, it's a full-time job running that and maintaining all the women. And she said she would have fought if she hadn't been so tired Mm. and she was just exhausted by life and everything. Otherwise she would have put up more of a fight. It was um, just, just fascinating because Marvin Zindler says that he was uh, an anonymous tip. All right. You have to, you have to tell the listener, uh, you have to introduce, (laughs) introduce him to the listener here. Marvin Zindler was a character and I don't use that, phrase lightly, uh, from Houston. He had been part of the sheriff's department for many years in Harris County, had established the uh, crime fraud division, and lost his job with Harris County uh, Sheriff's Department when uh, an election went against his, uh, his sheriff. He was out of work for a couple of weeks when uh, KTRK, Channel 13, which was uh, the lowest rated TV station at the time in Houston called him and offered him a job because he had been a flamboyant deputy. And on air, he was uh, just over the top. In the movie, Dom DeLuise plays his character, and that's really toned down a lot. Uh, (laughs) Marvin Zindler started shaving his head and wearing a silver toupee out of fear that someday he might go bald. Um, He was fired from uh, the NBC affiliate in Houston about 10 years prior because the station manager said he was too ugly for television. So he got a job with the Houston Press, which was a Scripps Howard newspaper at the time, and documented in a series of articles, uh, fully illustrated over the course of several months, all the plastic surgery he had undergone to change his face so he would no longer be too ugly for television. I mean, this guy was over the top. Uh, he is, he's uh, famous for his restaurant reports where he would talk about slime in the ice machine. And he would always have this signature sign off, Marvin Zendler, Eyewitness News. He was known as the loudest man on television. And he would do um, public, uh, just public affairs type th- where, where he would go after uh, false advertising. He went to the Astrodome that had advertised foot-long hot dogs with a measuring tape and on live television measured the hot dog and revealed that it was only 10 inches long. So the Houston Astrodome had to stop selling foot-long hot dogs and they started calling them king-sized hot dogs or something like that. I mean, just the most ridiculous thing. Now, he did a lot of good. He raised lots of money for charity, especially uh, children's hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, he helped many people who were the victim of slumlords who lived in, in unlivable housing conditions and got the owners to you know, make the necessary repairs and, and unscrupulous uh, used car salesmen uh, who would sell people vehicles with known defects or cranking back the odometers or things like that. He did a lot of good. Mm -hmm. But when he was recruited to go after the chicken ranch, there weren't really any victims Mm -hmm. there that he was championing the downtrodden for. In fact, when he was first approached to go after the chicken ranch, he said, no way. I mean, that that would be the end of my career. The chicken ranch is too well-liked 
by the power structure in Texas. It has too many allies that would destroy my career. So that's uh, kind of eye-opening when you realize mm-hmm. that Marvin Zindler did not want to go after the chicken ranch, the story that ultimately defined his career. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So uh, did she talk about her first interaction with with Zindler? Uh, Edna did? She, she, there is a video where... I don't know if Edna ever actually came in contact with Zimmer. There is a reporter that drives up into the parking lot area, and KTRK has the footage, I believe it's on YouTube right now, where Edna comes out, and she's in curlers and a house coat, and they ask her, is this a house of prostitution? And she goes, well, it's none of your business if it is or isn't. And and that was uh, Larry Connors, who was a reporter that was sent undercover to expose the chicken ranch. Marvin Zindler didn't actually go to LaGrange until the following year. They sent him in December of 1974 as to do a follow-up story to show that the LaGrange economy hadn't collapsed, mm-hmm. you know, one year later. Yeah. And that's where he ran into Sheriff Flournoy and ended up in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Now, witnesses say that Sheriff Flournoy never actually hit Marvin Zindler. And sheriff said, if I would have hit him, he would have been more in the ho- in the hospital than that. But Zindler was in his car, and the sheriff came after him and grabbed him and tried to pull him out of the car through the window. Zindler said the only reason that sheriff wanted me out of his car is so he could kill me, so I wasn't <laughs> going to come out of that car. And so they're in the town square, LaGrange, doing this tug-of-war sheriff who was in his 70s at this time point in time like he's six foot six this tall gangly sheriff who's really old Mm -hmm. screaming and cussing at zindler and trying to pull him out and zindler screaming and crying back don't i didn't mean yeah back and forth back and forth and finally the sheriff reaches in and grabs zindler's hair and pulls and the whole toupee comes off the sheriff looks at it and then starts whooping and jumping up and down throws it in the street stomps on and is going marvin zindler Marvin Zindler, eyewitness news, just mocking. He said, you get out of my town. You get out of my county. I'm tired of warning you. I'm tired of you, period. And it will not go well for you if you ever come back. Yeah, wow. Gosh. And that set off a chain of lawsuits and countersuits that lasted for quite a few years afterwards. Yeah. Wow. Um, I'm interested in kind of other things Edna told you about kind of transitioning to the next phase of her life kind of leaving that behind. And does she go to Arizona then? Or? No, she doesn't go to Arizona for another decade. Mm-hmm. Um, she's stuck with the chicken ranch, which she can't do anything with. Yeah. <clears throat> she buys a house in LaGrange because she'd lived there for almost 20 years at this point, and that's the longest she'd ever lived in one place. Mm-hmm. Bought a house, and uh, one day comes out, and her car is keyed. And just He goes, well... That's unusual. It looks like somebody came and just did a big, long scratch on the side of my car. And a couple days later, the bank calls her up and says, we've talked with the realtors, and we're going to return your down payment. And she was basically run out of town. We don't want you anymore. Now, Edna had continued Jesse's philanthropy streak. Mm-hmm. She had get, When they built a new hospital, she had donated $10,000 to that hospital. Wow. Now, I've got the newspaper with all the donors in there. And she had sponsored a Little League baseball team, <laughs> had done everything that Jesse had done. 
and had the same goodwill towards her from the community. But because that television coverage and the national press coverage had put LaGrange in a bad light, all of that was gone overnight. Mm, They didn't want her there anymore. Mm -hmm. So she was approached by two lawyers out of Houston on a lark. He said, let's buy the chicken ranch. So they bought it. $30,000. $30,000. So mm-hmm. she essentially got back what she had been paid. She had paid for it. Mm-hmm. And they actually took the front parlor section off the house and moved it to Dallas where they opened it as the chicken ranch on Greenville. It was open for about three months. Mm-hmm. They hired Edna to be the hostess. You know, it was a publicity yeah. to generate. It failed miserably. Yeah, It had... Um, Poor heating. The food wasn't very good. It was all a bunch of different chicken-themed dishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, people just came there to drink. But the big problem was that um, for some reason, a lot of the clientele thought that it was the chicken ranch brothel that was now operating on one of the major thoroughfares in Dallas Entertainment District. They didn't come for chicken. You they me. didn't come for chicken. They would yeah. proposition the waitresses. What time do you get off and how much do you cost? Mm-hmm. And bunch of waitresses quit because it's like, nope, mm-hmm. not going to do that. So that closed. Edna, uh, circle back around, um, Larry L. King and Peter Masterson started developing Best Little Whorehouse in Texas play based on Larry King's Playboy, Playboy article from 1973. Mm-hmm. So they tracked Edna down. She was in Midland at the time, I believe, working at a massage parlor. She got uh, $40,000 for her life story, for the rights to her story. The sheriff was offered $30,000, and he agreed to sell it to them if they gave Edna his share of the money. Plus, he extracted a promise from them that if there was ever a movie made of this, because it was Universal Pictures was financing the Broadway show, Mm -hmm. that they would not mention LaGrange or Fayette County in the movie, and they would not film in LaGrange or Fayette County. That was his condition, which is amusing because in the 1980s when they're filming the movie, the LaGrange Chamber of Commerce is up in arms that they're (laughs) filming over in Hallettsville, a couple of counties away. It's like, you know, it's a nice town and all, but that's not LaGrange. You need to be here in LaGrange. And they said, nope, we're not going here. They could have squeezed a few more dollars out of the chicken ranch. Exactly, exactly. So she got that, and when the film was produced, uh, she got an additional bonus of $50,000. And because of bad advice and bad investments, uh, most of that was lost. Mm. Um, She ended up in Oklahoma City running a massage parlor. Mm. Uh, And that's actually one of the new additions in the book, in the introduction, because around 2018, I got contacted by a lady who said, well, in between the movie and uh, her dying in uh, Arizona, she worked for me. (laughs) She managed a massage parlor. Oh, wow. So, and you can see it's the pattern. You know, she was in Midland working the massage parlor and then Oklahoma City working a massage parlor. That's what she knew. Mm-hmm. She couldn't really break out of that cycle. Mm-hmm. You know, when she had additional money uh, invested in a bar, a restaurant, and some other things, and, you know, it didn't work out, didn't last. 
ends up back in massage parlor. Wow. Yeah. You know, the, the, the thing that I, you're, you're, you're doing here in the book, I mean, you want to write the real story and that I'm interested in your, from your perspective as someone who's researched it, uh, what, what is, and you may have mentioned this a little bit earlier, but the mythical characterizations and the mythology and, and, you know, the, uh, you know, Dolly singing to Bert and Bert singing to Dolly. No. And I mean, please don't talk about Bert <laughs> singing. That's, that's bad memories. I mean, <laughs> I mean what, what is the, what is the tragedy of that? I mean, it's ob- obviously brought attention to sure, it. Sure. Uh, and you talked about even LaGrange, the best little town in Texas. I love the picture you have in there of the billboard where they're playing off that idea. But I mean, what, what do you see is what's wrong with that? I mean, or maybe wrong is not the word I'm looking for, but, but how does it distort the real story, all the, the other things that the chicken ranch becomes about? Well, it's interesting. In, in LaGrange, there's a definite push-pull. I'd say about 45% of the population saying, okay, this is part of history. We need to capitalize on it because tourists that come through here, they want to hear about the chicken ranch. Yeah. They want to see the chicken ranch. We need, we need to leverage that. It's about 50% of the population Chicken Ranch has no impact on them whatsoever. They're either too young to remember or they moved from elsewhere and they're just there and it it, it, it just makes them know never mind. They mm-hmm. don't care. Mm-hmm. And then there's about 5% of the population, if you mention the Chicken Ranch, they are going to shoot blood out of their eyeballs. They hate it with a burning passion mm-hmm. and hate anyone who mentions it or yeah. anything like that. And yeah. it, they just go over the top. And I think that that's kind of why the chicken ranch is still remembered, because by all rights, it should have closed, and that should have been the end of it, and nobody mm-hmm. would have ever talked about it again. Well, you know, back then, there were petitions. It was like 3,000 people signed petitions to keep it open. Mm-hmm. Uh, the governor had no power to close the chicken ranch, yet he called the sheriff and said, close the chicken ranch, and the sheriff closed the chicken ranch, and Dolph Briscoe, in his autobiography said I kept waiting for weeks afterward for someone to point out that I had no legal right or ability to do that and nobody did nobody ever did so then you get this play that was well and of course the sheriff and Marvin Zindler getting into their big fight yeah which is ridiculous and a year later after the chicken ranch stuff had started settling down well here it is again it's in all the media then they have lawsuits against each other, which keeps it in the media for another yeah. year. Then the play comes up. Then you have the house moved to Dallas. And all this stuff keeps it in the public consciousness. Then you have the group that tries to open a museum there and selling dollar plot squares. Mm-hmm. Well, they get into a big fight with the county, and that gets media attention. And then every soft, every time it starts to settle down, it comes back in some bizarre, strange way. In, in uh, 1999, in December, again, a bunch of Aggies want to have a Y2K party at the chicken ranch. So they rent the property, have porta potties there, they have portable hot tubs and some big tents. Well, John Kelso at the Austin American Statesman, uh, humor columnist, gets wind of it. And so he writes one of his jokey columns on December 31st. It runs. So the group having the party drive out to LaGrange to finish setup. And every law enforcement agency in the county is there with flashing lights waiting for them and say, if you set foot on this property, you're going to be charged with trespassing and all this, everything else. And it's like, you will not have this party here. 
well, why? You know, their reasons kept changing, but the fact of the matter is they did not want it to be there. Yeah. Right now, the owner of the property is uh, trading threatening legal letters back and forth with the owners of the surrounding property because the neighbors have changed the padlocks on the gate saying that, no, no, we own this strip of land in front of your gate, so you cannot cross over onto your property without trespassing. And your property is completely landlocked, so there's no legal way for you to get onto your property without trespassing, which is ridiculous. Mm Mm-hmm. It's I you know I'm not a scholar of property law in Texas, but this place had a right of way and a back gate, two different ways yeah. of accessing it for you know a hundred years, mm-hmm. and now in the last five years suddenly oh no you can't access it anyway whatsoever because they don't want Chicken Ranch to exist they want to erase yeah. all of the history completely yeah because they don't approve of it well. I'm sorry, history isn't there for you to approve or disprove. You know, it, history exists. History is. And the only way to learn from history is to learn from all of history. I you know, hear you. If, if, yeah. you have, if you have everything is, you know, sunshine and lollipops, well, that's going to leave a significant blind spot going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why people reinvent the wheel so much because they don't realize that, well, you know, guess what? This wheel had been invented before and these are the mistakes that were made. Yeah. And every time that happens, it's like the Streisand effect because it catches media attention and suddenly it blows up and everyone says, oh, yeah, the chicken ranch, eh? That's going to be good, good media coverage. <laughs> and so it's like a self-perpetuating you know, cycle. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really it's nuts. <laughs> it it's a story that won't go away, right? I mean, it's it a story that won't go away, but it also won't be fully looked at. But uh, you have helped uh, us with that. I would r- highly recommend inside the Texas Chicken Ranch, uh, the definitive account of the best little horror house, Jamie Lynn Blaschke. Blaschke. Jamie is also going to be. Uh, y- you can buy it where all good books are sold. But uh, Jamie is also going to be at Fabled. Fabled uh, right here in Waco. Yeah, on the 22nd. Of August 22nd from 7 to 8.30. Okay, so if you're hearing this b- before that date, uh, go by and see Jamie and get him to sign a copy of your book. But also, if you're hearing it after, know that Fabled's got copies. They are going to have copies, yeah. and they will have signed copies too. So oh, fantastic. Give, give, give them your business. Uh, bookstores like Fabled that are fun and independent and vibrant are important elements of uh, any thriving community. And I'm just tickled that they are going to put up with me for a couple hours. (laughs) It'll be great to have you here. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast, Jamie. Hey, it was absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.